All right, we can find our seats. We'll be ready to get started. Uh, two, two quick uh, details for you. Um, the men's breakfast is at 8 a.m. on June 1st, 8 a.m. I, I think it somehow didn't get put in the bulletin. Um, so the, the, the men's breakfast, June 1st, 8 a.m. Also, this is not Kyle's fault, this is my fault. The church picnic is not June 2nd. That is our family picnics here. Like, it's a very organic, casual thing. So if you're here, you want to pack your own food, after the service we go over to the playground area. It's not that you have to have kids to hang out. It's just a time where if you're around and you want to spend time with the, the family, just come on, bring your, pack your lunch. So that is, not, that is not the church picnic. The actual church picnic is uh, July 7th at Shove Park. So I just want to clarify, July 7th, church picnic at Shove Park. June 2nd, just our regular, we're doing it in the summer where you just kind of bring your own food and hang out together after the service. Does that make sense? Hopefully. We got too many things that I named picnic is the problem, apparently. I am not creative with names, so uh, you can, you can uh, I mean, picnic just makes sense, so everything's a picnic. Church is a picnic. One big picnic. Wow. Great start. Picnics. John chapter 13, if you would. Turn with me to John chapter 13. And, uh, we're going to look at uh, two verses uh, for this morning, and we're going to look at about a thousand other verses as well. Um, John chapter 13, if you would turn your copy of John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, and stand with me as we read this. John chapter 13, starting at verse 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, as we continue to look at what you have called us to as a family, Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would bless us, that you would minister to us, that you would be glorified in our thoughts, our words, and our actions. We love you, we praise you, in Jesus' precious name, amen. Please be seated. This is, uh, was a, a hard sermon for me to get put together. In fact, I think I finally got something down on paper yesterday at 4 p.m. And I think one of the reasons why I struggle with this is just I have so much to say about it because there are two things I am extremely passionate about. And I'm telling you this so you can know my heart as I dive into this, not to prep you and put you on guard or anything, nothing like that. It's just I want you to, to sense where I come from. There are two things I'm super passionate about. Number one is the gospel and number two is the church. The church is probably my second most passionate thing. I've only ever, in 40, almost 40 years of my life, been to three churches. And the only reason I left a church is because I moved out of the town. I'm super passionate about the church. 
I'm super passionate about how the church behaves, and I don't always get it right, and I realize that. And, and as I walk through this passage, man, the Lord has been ripping my heart out and saying, this is what you are doing wrong in your own personal walk and relationships with people in the church and, in, and, and just in brothers and sisters, and, and this is what you're called to. And, and as I walked through it, it was super sanctifying and super uh, exciting and, and challenging because I'm very passionate about it. I'm very passionate about the church. And part of the reason for that is as I felt called into the ministry, the Lord called me through a passage in Luke or in Acts chapter 20, this incredibly uh, uh, heart-wrenching text where Paul calls the Ephesian elders together and he's on his way to Jerusalem. He says, I'm never going to see you guys again. And I know what I'm going to face when I get to Jerusalem. And they're, they're begging him, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. He says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I know that when I go to Jerusalem that I'm in, going to face bondage, imprisonment, but none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself that I might finish my task with joy, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. When I read that, my heart was so broken that I realized that I needed to spend time in preparing for the ministry that God had called me to. And then you read a couple of verses later, and it says, Paul says to these Ephesian elders in his parting words, he says to them, guys, be good overseers, be good shepherds of the flock, because it is the church that Christ bought with His precious blood. That's why I'm passionate about the church. Because this gathering here was purchased by the precious blood of Christ. And that's why it's so important. That's why the local church is so important because it is purchased by the blood of Christ. And so as we walk through the series and just kind of laying our, our, our hearts out as what we have walked through as, as, as elders and what we desire the church to look through, to look like, and, 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 and as we kind of backtrack a little bit, I want to put it all together, what we've gone through. Uh, this will be our third week in this, in this We Are HGC series, but the question ultimately we start with is what is our purpose as we sat down as leaders? We ask the question if we're going to uh, say that we are the church and, and what is the church? Church, um, we, we ask, what is the purpose? And the purpose is very clear in Scripture. The purpose of anything is to bring glory to the Father. It's the end chief goal of mankind is to bring glory to the Father. And so we say, well, how do we do that as a church? The church does it when the church does what God intends the church to look like. That when we function as the way that God intends the church to act, we bring glory to the Father. We're seeking to make HGC here more and more like that in order that we might bring glory to the Father. That's our purpose. And so we talked about, you know, the first week we mentioned, uh, I, I mentioned from up here that our, our purpose is to bring glory to the Father. And we do that by, number one, being a gospel-defined church. And we talked last week, Mike so uh, eloquently went through our statement of faith and what we believe about the Word. The, the Word defines the Gospel, which defines the church, right? And so we say, our purpose is, I'm trying to put some structure to this whole thing for you real quick in, in my many rambling words, um, that, that our purpose is to glorify God. We do that by having our church be defined as a Gospel-defined church through the Word. So we have a plan, plan one, the Word. The Word defines us. The Word instructs us. The Word uh, gives us direction. But second, we also do it by being a gospel-driven church. 
Because we function as a family that is defined by the Gospel and behaves the way the Gospel drives us and moves us. And that's what we're going to talk about today is the family. Our, our plan is one, through the Word, we will be Gospel-defined. Two, the family will be Gospel-driven. And will by our very virtue of how we act and how we interact with one another, we will bring glory to the Father. And then next week, we'll talk about Gospel-declaring through our service. So, as we gathered as elders back last year, we talked about what is our purpose. Our purpose here at HEC is to be a church that brings glory to the Father by, uh, through uh, being defined by the Word that, that we proclaim uh, each and every Sunday and in, 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 in our groups and in our times and in our families. But then not only that, but that we would be defined by uh, being gospel-driven in our families. And, and third, next week, we'll be gospel-declaring by our service. So what does gospel-driven family look like? That's what we're going to talk about today. And, and if you still have John chapter 13 open... We want to give a couple of thoughts on this and, and jump right in. I've got, uh, I've got some PowerPoint for you. I know, that's pretty impressive for me. I did it this morning at 8.30, so don't be too impressed. But I have a lot of notes that I, I'm hoping that you can maybe glean some things from. John chapter 13. So we've got this incredible passage. I want you to kind of put it in perspective. Jesus has just had His last supper with the disciples. He's in that upper room. Jesus said in Luke, I believe, He said that I have longed to have this time with you. That, that for His ministry of three years, the one thing He looked forward to was that moment in the upper room when He can gather with those, those chosen men and, and impart some things to them. And He does some incredible stuff. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time walking through what He does, but He washes His disciples' feet. And we're going to jump back to that later on. And He tells them uh, about... He institutes the Lord's Supper and explains to them this feast that, that, that they would partake. And every time that they would declare declare the, 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 the coming moments about what is to happen. Then he closes with these parting words to the future leaders of his church. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you would love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus' parting instructions is this. Love one another. It is the distinguishing mark of the family of Christ. That those who would call themselves brothers and sisters and gather together as an assembly and say we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are His disciples, that we are marked and distinguished from the world by our love for one another. The mark of a gospel-driven community is a love like no other. Notice what he said. He said, by your love, you will be known as my disciples. The world has love, does it not? But this is a love, it says, that will distinguish humans as followers of Jesus Christ. That means it is a love that is unique and different from the rest of the world. That should be a heaviness that sits upon us and asks the, the question, well, what is that? 
Not as a burden, but as a, as a thought that we walk through. What does that mean that we would have a love that is different and unique from the rest of the world that when people see us as, as brothers and sisters, that we have such a love for one another that it is different, that you cannot see it outside of the local assembly and the universal church. That should blow your mind that it is so unique that the world would say, must be a follower of Jesus. So I want to start with a proposition, first of all, a proposition to consider with these texts. I'm going to walk through a couple of points, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time at the end in some practical application. A proposition, and and really what I'm going to do is offer three truths from this text that I want us to consider as we look into the family. Truth number one, the church is not individual, but it consists of a collection of individuals. The church is not individual, but it consists of a collection of individuals. I thought about taking our text this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 through 27, and I'd encourage you to look there at some point, whether it's today or throughout the week. It is an incredible passage from Paul in regards to the church. Uh, and, and in it, he says that the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And he goes on, he says, if the foot says... Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, and and so on and so forth. And then at the end, he says, starting in verse 25, that there may be no divisions in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. It is important to remember, Jesus says here, that you are to love one another. One another. If you want practical directions about how the church is supposed to behave, we are one another. It's, it's, two, it's one Greek word that, that, that it talks about the one another. There are, there are multiple, multiple commands. I think there are uh, at least a hundred times in Scripture where the one another's are mentioned of how the, the family of, of God is supposed to behave, 47 specifically by Jesus. About one-third of those are about how the church is to get along. One-third of the hundred times is specifically about love for one another. The focus of the church, get this, brothers and sisters, In America, we struggle with this. The focus of the church is not you, but us. This is so important. The focus of the church is not you, but us. Love one another, not love you. One another. It's a collection of individuals. In Ephesians chapter 4, that passage I read to start our service today, it talks about how when each member, I want you to understand this, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, it's a mantra we could say over and over and over again. It says, each member, when they are doing their part, then the church grows. So the, the implication of that is, if you as a member of the body of Christ are not doing your part, the whole church suffers. That's how important you are as a part of this body. That when one member doesn't do their part, we don't function and grow as we ought. Truth number two. The interactions of the individuals within the church should be so recognizably different that any other 
organization that it is a distinguishing mark. This again is that love. That the interactions within the local fellowship, the universal church, the brothers and sisters in Christ should be so recognizably different that it is a distinguishing mark. There's that, that thought, by your love for one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. And then truth number three, this is really classroomish, I know, but we're going to get past it. Truth number three, the interactions of the individuals within the church is to be a reflection of Christ's interactions to the church. It should be a reflection of the gospel. Okay, I want you to put these together and hold them kind of as a placeholder as we walk through this because they're important. That, that number one, that the church is not individual but consists of a collection of individuals. That the church's interactions uh, within the individuals should be so markedly different than the rest and any other organizations in the world. That the world should be able to look at us and say, yeah, they're not like the, the, uh, the uh, Knights of Columbus down the road. There's something different about them. They don't just meet for fish fries. There's something different about them. In truth number three, the interactions of the individual, so how we interact together, ought to be a reflection of the very heart of God and ultimately a reflection of the Gospel. Those are important to hold. So how do we do it? Right? How do we do it? Three things. Number one, a principle. It starts by the church understanding and living a principle. And that principle is this. As you have received, so give to others. As you have received, so give to one another. We must, first of all, in order to understand this, we must believe the Gospel, right? That, that, that idea that the Gospel is what we have received. We must move past just a knowledge of it and remember what exactly we have received because of the Gospel. We, it would do us well to each and every Sunday, and, and, and I'm telling you, as long as I'm up here, I'm going to remind you what the Gospel is. Because I'm passionate about the gospel. The gospel is simply this, that we have got and received so much more and far greater than we ever deserved. <coughs> that because of sin, there was separation from God. And that every single human being since the very beginning of time, after Adam and Eve fell into sin in the Garden of Eden, that there has been a desire and a longing to get back a relationship that was forever broken. And not only that, but there was not just a broken relationship, but there was because of a direct transgression of God's command, there is punishment due. And that punishment due, as we can read throughout Scripture, for all have sinned, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? It is death. That's horrible news. And the gospel, good news, is that we have received what we do not deserve. And, and there are really, as I break it down in the simplest form, there are three things that we should always call into remembrance that we have received. Number one, we have received mercy, have we not? We received mercy. Mercy is that I did not get what I deserve, and what I deserved was punishment. I deserved the, the very punishment that was taken from me because not only did I receive mercy, I received grace, which is that God gave me what I did not deserve. And what I did not deserve was that somebody would step in and take my punishment and make payment for my transgressions against a holy and just God. Listen, when we sing, we ought to be shouting with joy 
and proclamation because we have received grace. We have received payment in full on our behalf and we didn't get what we deserved, condemnation, but we got cleansing and forgiveness and restoration. And third, because of mercy and grace, we have received redemption that we have been given eternal life for all who would believe. We need to believe that as a church. Not just that we must believe it, but then we must live the gospel. If we believe we have received such an amazing gift as a result of the gospel, how can we not then behave in such a way? I mean, think about it. Weekends for me have such a sanctifying work that I get frustrated over things. And the Lord, like I said, He's been working on my heart all week as I've been walking through this text and I've been thinking about what it is to be the family and, and I see my frustrations in things, in the way things are done, in the way things are handled or in, in various things and I think, man, they sh- this should happen this way or this should happen that way and then the Lord has saying, but Nate, you are learning that you have received grace and mercy and redemption. Shouldn't you be extending that to others? And I'm like, oh. true i mentioned a couple of weeks ago imagine a church that lived the gospel where it was a safe place of freedom from fear of shame and guilt where there was uh, the mantra that that i have grown to love gospel plus safety plus time where we would understand the gospel that we have received what we certainly did not deserve and that we can walk into a place where that same thing that we experience is what we present where there is a place of freedom and safety, where we can actually confess our sins to one another, and where we can withhold judgment because we have been forgiven and cleansed. Imagine if we lived the gospel in a family setting where we offered mercy when it isn't deserved. Giving grace when it is needed. Seeking redemption when it stings. And somebody that met with recently that hurt me really, really bad. More than anybody has ever hurt me in ministry. And it just so happened that I'm studying this passage, and let me tell you, I didn't want to forgive, but I've been forgiven. And that makes it a lot easier. It makes it possible. So a principle that must be lived out, that as you have received, so give to one another. Well, what have we received? Notice in this passage that we started in, John chapter 13, a new love, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. So there's a principle. There's also a picture in this. It's not just a principle, but it's a picture that when the church does these things, it points to Christ. That when the world walks in and sees the body of Christ living out the gospel amongst each other, they look at the church and they say, how do you do that? And why do you do that? They start with, why do you do that? And we say, because of Christ. Christ has forgiven me. That if we behave as a family who has received the gospel and gives the gospel to one another, the world can look at us and say, okay, I can see 
how Christ has forgiven you because you behave in such a way to one another. And it points to the Holy Spirit because then the question is, how can you do that? And the reality is, I can't do it, but Christ in me. But how do you do it? And you can honestly say, if we are behaving in such a way that the, the world looks and says, wow, the gospel is an amazing thing, that it transforms people, that they can behave in such a way that they can do that. And how do they do that? And we can say, you know what? Apart from the Holy Spirit dwelling in me, I can't. Brothers and sisters, if the goal of the church is to be a reflection of the very heart of God, if we live out the gospel in such a way the world looks at us and says their love is unique because they treat each other in such a way I don't understand it, then we can say, let me explain it to you. Christ did that for me. And the Holy Spirit dwells in me, and now I can do it to one another. It's a principle. How do we do it? How do we live out these, these, this aspect through a principle, as you have received, so give to one another. It's a picture that as we live the gospel, it promotes the gospel. And third, it's a pattern. In case we don't quite know how to do it, we have a pattern throughout Scripture. The church has been given a pattern to follow just as Christ. And let me tell you, this is an act a high standard that, that we can't sit here and say, well, I'm just going to do everything as Christ because you're going to fail. Because we're not perfect, but we have something to strive for, don't we? Just as Christ, you, you look at all these times where Jesus says, uh, go and do this. He always says, as I have done. God always, always gives us a, a, a hope and an encouragement uh, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, meaning Jesus. Colossians 2, 6, Paul says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Do as he did. And, and if we function as he did and live and strive for that, over and over again we find scriptures that, that tell us that as Jesus did, so do in this very chapter that we just walked through, in John, I mean, in these couple of verses, in John chapter 13, you can go back to, to verse 12. Jesus has this incredible moment, and, and the magnitude of it blows my mind every time I read it. It says in verse 12 of John chapter 13, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you what? An example. An example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Over and over again, my mantra with elders and, and deacons is this. We cannot ask the body to do something that we are unwilling to do. We have to lead by example. We're not always good at it and we're working on it. And, but at the same time, we cannot ask the body, we cannot ask the fellowship to do something we are unwilling to do because we have to set the example. Jesus looked at His disciples and He said, wash one another's feet and by the way, I did it for you to set an example for you. Jesus always sets an example. He set an example in, number one, serving. 
Matthew chapter 20. Jesus in talking to His disciples. Verse 25, He says, Jesus calls them to Him and He said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever must be first among you must be your slave. Why? Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus sets us the example in serving. He sets us the example in sacrifice. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. First Peter, Peter tells us in chapter 2 of First Peter, he says in verse 20, For what credit is it if you, when you are uh, uh, sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you, when you do good and suffer for it, endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. He goes on. Sacrifice. He leaves us an example in forgiveness. Colossians 3, verse 13. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, Paul talking to the Colossian church, he says, guys, you need to forgive one another. Why? As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. As you have been forgiven, how have we been forgiven? Luke 23, 34, with His dying breath, Jesus looks to the crowd and He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the example He has offered to us in regards to forgiveness. And sometimes we want to sit here and we want to hold, but they wronged me. And I get it. They abused me. I get it. But they beat and crucified Him. And He said, Father, forgive them. Forgiveness and love. John 13, 34. As I have loved you. Ephesians 5, 1-2. Therefore, be imitators of God as children, beloved children of God, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You ever pause when you read John 13.34 where it says, I, a new commandment I give you that you would love one another as Christ loved the church? You ever pause right there and think about how Christ has loved you? It is mind-blowing. God demonstrates His love. He showed His love. He didn't just say, I love you, and walked away. He said, I love you, I give my life for you. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. First John also tells us that this is the example that we have, that if Christ laid down His life for us, we ought to love one another in such a way and offer our lives for one another. It's a pattern. So how do we do it? We, we understand the principle. We live as though we have received the gospel and we experience the gospel and then we give the gospel to one another. 
We, we do so because when we do that, we actually declare the gospel. We point to Jesus and we give glory to God because He is the one that has transformed hearts and minds and lives. And we, we look to the example, the pattern of Jesus. And it's an incredible thing. But I want to be very practical this morning. Because there's a practical matter in this. We want to be more and more a church that lives out the gospel. We want to create a place where we can experience the gospel, not just have knowledge of it. What I believe about the church, and I'm passionate about this, is a commitment to the gospel and a commitment to one another. And they are inseparable. Over and over again, when we talk about the local church, when we talk about what we want this local fellowship to be, we want to be committed to the gospel. We want to be committed to one another. I have a pension in my heart toward loyalty and devotion. It's something that was built into me by my grandfather. And, and I want to be careful that, that you don't uh, uh, misunderstand that this is my heart and my pension. It's not my demand. This is who I am. That loyalty is an incredible thing for me. I value it so highly. And I think there's scriptural basis where we ought to value and put in high esteem our devotion to one another. I mentioned that 100 times it's mentioned, there's 59, uh, I think, at least 59 one another commands in Scripture. Imagine a place where we did more than just said we will try to do these things. But we gave permission to one another to hold each other accountable to do them. For those of you who are married, you didn't say to your spouse in your wedding vows, I'll try to love you. No, you looked him in the eye and you said, till death do we part for better or for worse. Imagine a church family that gathers together as brothers and sisters and says, we will do this for better or for worse till death do we part. Imagine a covenant together for better or for worse to accept and welcome one another. Romans 15, 7. No matter age, stage of life, social status, or depth of knowledge, but rather as Christ accepted me, I will accept you. And I will welcome you to be a part of who I am and, and to, to be a part of my life and to walk in this walk of faith together. Imagine a place where we covenanted together for better or for worse to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2, and to care for one another, 1 Corinthians 12.25, even when it's inconvenient. I don't have time for that. You're my brother, my sister. I need to make time for that. Imagine a place. These are not meant to be burdensome or guilt-driven, but an encouragement that if we did these things, we would be a radically different family. Imagine if we covenanted together for better or for worse to comfort one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 I'm sorry, I skipped one. To build one another up, Romans 14, 19, even when it takes time. Oh, that brother just doesn't get it. It's a waste of my time. That's not what we're called to. 
one another. As Christ has not given up on us, as he is continually seeking to build me up, I ought to be seeking to build one another up. To comfort one another, even when you don't know exactly what to say. Paul tells the the, the Corinthians that we would comfort one another with the comfort we have received. That we would confess our sins one to another and pray for one another without fear of shame. A place where we could come and say, you know what my struggle is, brother? This is the sin I am struggling with. And we can share that freely without fear of condemnation and judgment, but a freedom to know that that brother is committed to me, to pray for me, to build me up, to strengthen me when I am in need. To be devoted to one another and honor one another. Romans 12.10 Even when we are tired and don't feel like it. Paul tells the Romans, he says, outdo one another. Strive to to outdo your brother, to honor them. Be the first to honor them. Be honest with one another. Even when we're afraid of their reaction. I've got a loogie hanging from my nose, you'll tell me, right? It's a very facetious example. On purpose, because there are things in our life that we ought to be willing to be honest with one another. Forgive one another, even when it hurts. Ephesians 4.32 Be hospitable to one another. 1 Peter 4.9 Open our homes to one another. Isn't it God's anyway? Did God not give you all that you have? I have found in my life, in my ministry, in my personal life, that there is a direct connection between a principle of ownership and a principle of anger. That if we are unwilling to open our hands to others, particularly the body of Christ, to the things that God has given us, we will struggle with anger, bitterness, and resentment. I can guarantee you that. It is a principle found in Scripture. It is a principle in our our own personal experiences that if we are unwilling because we say these are mine, I can promise you God will take them from you because He gives everything to us and He says, now go and be a family. We should be welcoming one another into our lives beyond just Sunday morning. Imagine if we covenanted together to spur one another on and build one another up. Our words should be building each other up all the time. I did this, uh, this Spartan race last year, and for some foolish reason, I decided to do it again this year. I'm a little disappointed that somebody's not joining me, but I understand why. I'm looking at you, Ben, because that brother encourages you. And the whole time I'm getting tired and I'm, I'm worn out, I'm getting cramps and muscles I didn't know exist. And he'd come up beside you and he'd be like, come on, man, we can keep going, we can keep going. That's what we ought to be doing as a family, that when we're struggling, we come alongside each other. Keep going, keep going, you're doing it, you can do it. You feel like a million dollars when, when you're with that guy for like 10 minutes because he's like super positive. Sometimes it gets, you know, like so much, you're like, all right, can you take a chill pill? I'm just kidding. I love that guy. 
Imagine if we covenanted together as a family to serve one another. Galatians 5.13 The church, please hear me on this, the church that has Jesus Christ as its example should never have a volunteer problem. The church that has Jesus Christ as a living example who said, I will wash Judas' feet, my betrayer, before he goes and betrays me should never have a volunteer problem. Submit to one another, regardless of our status, overseers or members, we are all to submit to one another. If our elders are not submitted to the people of this body, then we have a leadership problem. And last but not least, Imagine a church that covenanted together to love one another as Christ did. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, 8, above all. Anytime you read in Scripture, above all, you should pause and consider what is about to be said because it is super important. Peter says, above all, have fervent charity, fervent, agape, sacrificial love for one another. How? As Christ did. I believe the church functions as a gospel-driven church when it is committed to the gospel and when it is committed to one another. And when we have those two things merged and married together, we bring glory to the Father. We demonstrate to the world a love like no other. Listen, we can talk about plans and and we can talk about ways that we could fill this sanctuary. We could have a raffle for a car and I guarantee you'd fill this place. But there's a much easier way, brothers and sisters. It's not cheap. It's expensive. Not monetarily. Emotionally, physically, spiritually. And that is that we would love one another in devotion as a family. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to close with this as Stephen comes up. The church, specifically this local fellowship, it's not like a family. It is a family. And if we behave in such a way, we will radically transform people's opinions of what the gospel is. And if we behave in such a way that as we have received, so will I give. The next time somebody hurts you and you say, man, they really did me wrong. And I can say, you know what? Christ lived and died for me. And he forgave me when I'm the one who nailed him to the cross. When it was my sin and condemnation that he took There is no reason, brothers and sisters, why we can't look at one another in the face and say, I forgive you and I love you. That when we're tired and weary from doing things, we're given scriptural commands, do not become weary in doing good. And I realize that's hard sometimes because we can press on and we can give and we can give. And I'm not asking us to give to exhaustion. I'm saying give through the Holy Spirit. 
And as we do so, brothers and sisters, we will fill this place. Because people are attracted to that kind of love. People are longing for that kind of love. People are longing for a family that loves them unconditionally. They are longing for a family that says, I am devoted to you. I am for you. And I want to build you up. And I want to strengthen you. And I want to make you more and more into the image of Christ. And we don't do that perfect here. And I'm not shaming us for this. But I'm saying let's move towards that. That's our heart when we say, what is HGC? As elders, when you ask us our heart and our purpose, our purpose is to glorify God. And we will do that by being gospel-defined. That we will say that we are a church simply because Christ has redeemed us. And that we are gospel-driven. And that the way I have received is the way I desire to import to you. Export to you. If we do that, there won't be empty chairs anywhere. Because people long for that. They want to be touched, and they want to know that the gospel is real. I'm going to pray. I don't have any fancy thing I want you to commit to or anything like that. I I know that as we move forward, my heart, I'm going to tell you right now, my heart is I would love for us to look at a covenant. That we would look at it and say, yes, I am willing to put my name to that and to say, not as a, as a legalistic thing, but to say, that's what I'm committed to. And what I'm committed to is one another. And maybe that'll come down the road. I don't know. We're working through things. And, 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 but this is our heart, and this is my heart, and I am super passionate about it. Because I love this church, and I love you. And I want you to know that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You that we're not alone. That You have called us together. And You have called us by Your Gospel. A message of hope, a message of eternal salvation. That Jesus Christ came and He lived and He died for my sins. And He took them all away. And You made me new. Father, I pray if there is anyone here today that does not know that, that has never experienced the reality that behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed, has lavished, has given to us that we could be called the children of God and so now we are. But I pray if there's someone here that has not experienced that, that today would be a day of salvation. I pray that there would be a longing for something more in our hearts. And so Lord, I pray that through our giving of our hearts to You and our giving of our hearts to one another, that we would give You glory and honor that is due Your name. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.